Tonight I ordered a targeted military strike in Syria. The nomination of Neil M. Gorsuch to be an associate justice is confirmed. Hey, that all worked out nicely, didn't it? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Well, journalist Sam Sachs tweeted last night, guest after guest is gushing. From MSNBC to CNN, Trump is receiving his best night of press so far, and all he had to do was start a war. Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept tweeted, Leaders all over the world of every type of government know that the easiest way to unite people behind them is a new war. Well, mission accomplished, it looks like. That uh, new war is now underway in the uh, past 12 hours since Donald Trump launched 59 cruise missiles from U.S. warships in the Mediterranean targeting an airbase in Bashar al-Assad's Syria. More on that in a moment. Also... The GOP theft of the U.S. Supreme Court majority, likely for decades, is now complete as of today. Congratulations to the Republicans for stealing what they could not win outright, apparently. But at the same time, amidst all of that, we've actually got some very good news um, hidden amongst all of this. Uh, In fact, a landmark Uh, A court decision on the Civil Rights Act, which we will be discussing with my guests shortly. And Desi Doyen will be here with the Green News Report. Hey, Des. Hey, so at least there's that. There's that. It's always a difficult day when we're looking to you for good news. Um, uh, Some of which on the uh, uh, science once again on trial in the U.S. House Science Committee. Uh, And more like that awaits us ahead. So a big show today with a lot of ground to cover. Um, But first, a number of world leaders 
are rallying around the U.S. following its missile strike early Friday on a Syrian airbase in response to this week's chemical attack. Syrian allies such as Russia condemned the move as aggression and suspended crucial coordination with Washington in Syria's congested skies. U.S. regional allies such as Israel, as well as Saudi Arabia and Turkey, which support the opposition in Syria, all welcomed the strike, while Iran called it a dangerous unilateral action that would, quote, strengthen terrorists. A Kremlin spokesperson told reporters today that Quote, President Putin regards the U.S. attacks as an aggression against a sovereign state in violation of the norms of international law. And this is a quote under a trumped up pretext at that. He said that uh, it marks a significant blow to Russia-U.S. relations and that the bombing creates a serious obstacle for an international coalition against terrorism. A U.S.-led coalition has been bombing uh, Islamic State or ISIS targets in Syria since 2014, while Russia's air force has been striking both groups like ISIS and Syrian rebels in order to aid President Bashar al-Assad's forces. The Syrian government has been under international pressure after the uh, chemical attack this week, which Syria blames on opposition chemical stockpiles following the death of some 87 people at this point, including 31 children in the incident, even Russia has said its support for Assad is not unconditional in the conflict, which has so far killed an estimated 400,000 people. Russia has charged the toxic agents seen uh, killing civilians in dramatic videotaped footage this week were released when a uh, Syrian airstrike hit a rebel chemical weapons arsenal. And uh, and that blame should not in any event be fully apportioned until a full international investigation has been carried out. Well, there's an idea. Ala Ali Youssef, a 27-year-old survivor of the attack, told AP that he welcomed the U.S. action but worried it would be little more than an anesthetic that numbs their pain and otherwise serves to save face for the international community. What good is a strike on Sherat Air Base alone while we have more than 15 other bases, Al Youssef, who who lost 25 relatives in the chemical attack, asked. The overnight U.S. missile attack marks the first time the U.S. has directly targeted Assad's forces and thrust the U.S. administration deeper into the complex Syrian conflict. Now, while the Obama administration, you may recall, had threatened to attack Assad's forces after previous chemical attacks, he sought congressional approval for the action, which Congress neither offered nor even debated at the time, despite much criticism of Obama's policies from congressional war hawks. Speaking of Congress, for their part, they have still yet to debate the issue after all of these years of conflict in Syria. And both chambers are now on their two-week Easter recess, so uh, I guess uh, no rush there. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi on Friday sent a letter to Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan asking him to bring Congress back into session to debate authorization for the use of, mil of military force against Syria. She wrote the president's actions and any response demands that the uh, that we immediately do our duty. Congress must live up to the its constitutional responsibility to debate an authorization of the use of military force against a sovereign nation.
Pelosi wrote, adding, The crisis in Syria will not be resolved by one night of airstrikes. The killing will not stop without a comprehensive political solution to end the violence. She described the matter to be of grave concern to our national security and our many troops in the region. In addition uh, to charges that the U.S. action is in violation of international law, several members of both parties in the U.S. Congress say it was unlawful for Trump to carry out strikes without authorization from Congress. And they issued warnings that Trump must consult with them before taking any additional actions in Syria. Many members uh, signaled their support for the action. Speaker uh, Paul Ryan, for instance, called the strikes, quote, appropriate and just. Republican Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee lauded the attack as proportional, but warned the administration that they need to, quote, engage with Congress and clearly communicate its full strategy to the American people. Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia said Congress will work with the president, but his failure to seek congressional approval is unlawful. Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware said President Trump must seek an authorization for the use of military force from Congress. Republican Senator Rand Paul shared the sentiment, tweeting, The president needs congressional authorization for military action as required by the Constitution, adding, Our prior interventions in this region have done nothing to make us safer, and Syria will be no different. Congressman Ed Royce, also a Republican of the uh, the chair of the House Foreign Relations Committee, said in a statement that Trump must work with Congress moving forward on policy towards Syria. Republican Justin Amash, congressman from Michigan, charged, quote, airstrikes are an act of war. Atrocities in Syria cannot justify departure from the Constitution, which vests in Congress power to commence war. He was echoed by Democratic Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, a hero to many, as the only member of Congress to have voted against the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. That uh, authorization had authorized military action against those responsible for the 9-11 uh, attacks and any, quote, associated forces. That is still the authorization cited for, uh, for most of our actions in the Middle East to this day. But can Assad really be considered in any way, shape or form an associated force of Al Qaeda when he is also fighting against Al Qaeda and, and their associates in uh, in Syria? In any event, Congresswoman Lee called Trump's missile strike, quote, an act of war. She said Congress needs to come back into session and hold a debate. Anything less is an abdication of our responsibility. Democratic California Congressman. Ro Kahana asked, have we still not learned from the disasters in Iraq and Libya? Now Syria? Every time we have attacked since 2001, terrorism has spread, he said. Democratic Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, a veteran who uh, served in combat in Iraq, says she was angered and saddened that Trump has taken the advice of war hawks and escalated our illegal regime change war to overthrow the Syrian government. She called the escalation short-sighted and charges that, quote, it will lead to more dead civilians, more refugees, the strengthening of al-Qaeda and other terrorists, and a possible nuclear war between the United States and Russia. 
Well, that's cheerful. Yeah, there's a cheery thought for you. Uh, I would also add, while I don't have time to offer details and, and quotes here for the moment, a number of diehard uh, Trumpers, diehard Trump fans like Ann Coulter uh, and other longtime pro-Trump bloggers have also criticized the president or declared that they are off the Trump train. We will see about that. But uh, since there's been so much cheerleading uh, for what happened there in Syria, I uh, in the corporate media, I just wanted to, to make sure you heard that there are a lot of folks questioning what happened, criticizing what happened and, uh, you know, calling out the president to uh, do anything he's going to do lawfully. Balancing the scales a little bit there, I hope. Speaking of balancing the scales, has the uh, nation spent last night and this morning transfixed by videos of missiles being launched off of U.S. warships in the eastern Mediterranean, by the way, at the cost of $500,000 each, and otherwise being distracted by the newest U.S. war in the Middle East, the Republican Party's unprecedented theft of the highest court in the land, the U.S. Supreme Court, is now officially complete. Today, after Republicans in the U.S. Senate unilaterally changed the rules for confirming Supreme Court justices, after being unable to obtain the 60 votes traditionally needed to confirm a Supreme Court justice, Republicans in the Senate, led by Mitch McConnell, confirmed right-wing justice, right-wing judge, now justice, Neil Gorsuch, as the high court's newest member, officially restoring the 5-4 to four right-wing majority on the court that they have enjoyed for several generations now. That, after the uh, Republicans' unprecedented, historic failure to allow a single hearing, much less an up-or-down vote for Barack Obama's nominee, Judge Merrick Garland, for more than a year following the death of Justice Antonin Scalia in February of 2016. And with that, the court will or should, frankly, have an asterisk now next to all of its decisions for the next several decades uh, and will uh, will most likely uh, be seen as uh, illegitimate by many, with now Justice Gorsuch tipping the so-called blind scales of justice to the right from his lifetime appointment to a stolen U.S. Supreme, uh, Supreme Court seat. With that in mind, there was a very encouraging ruling on an appellate court over the past week, which is having uh, important consequences for the landmark Civil Rights Act. But can that ruling withstand the newly stolen U.S. Supreme Court? That story, both the good news and bad, is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A federal appeals court in Chicago on Tuesday ruled that the 1964 Civil Rights Act also protects LGBTQ employees 
from workplace discrimination. That's the first time a federal appellate court has come to that conclusion. The decision was by the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and it comes after it had thrown out a finding back in July by three of its own judges that the law does not cover sexual orientation bias and ordered a rare rehearing by the full court. The case comes from a lawsuit by Indiana teacher Kimberly Hively alleging that the Ivy Tech Community College in South Bend, Indiana, didn't hire her full time because she's a lesbian. The entire court reheard oral arguments in November and directed the toughest questions at a lawyer for the college who argued only Congress could extend the protections. According to AP, the aggressive question suggested that the court might be willing to expand the 53-year-old landmark law. And now it looks as though they have. Judge Richard Posner, uh, a very well-known, well-respected Ronald Reagan appointee, asked that attorney for the community college, John Maley, uh, he said during uh, during the oral arguments, he said, who would be hurt if gays and lesbians have a little more job protection? When Maley said he couldn't think of anyone who would be harmed, Posner shot back. So what's the big deal? Posner also said it was wrong to say that a decades old statute is frozen on the day it passed and that the courts could never broaden its scope. Well, that coming from a conservative judge, I think, is uh, quite noteworthy. Eight of the 11 judges who reheard this case, including Posner, were appointed by Republican presidents. But can this ruling uh, stand up to uh, or with a, a now stolen Supreme Court? Here to talk about this case and what it means as we move forward and how it frankly highlights the concerns about what has happened over the past week in the U.S. Senate is our old friend Mark Joseph Stern. He covers the law and LGBTQ issues for Slate.com. So all of those seem to come together in this story. Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Thank you for having me back. Always a pleasure. Always great to have you, sir. I want to talk about the specifics of what I think is actually a very important ruling this week from the uh, full Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. You called it a thunderbolt over at Slate. Uh, As I said, I think it may underscore the importance of what has happened this week with the Supreme Court. But first... Uh, Let me get your thoughts on that and the Republicans' use of the nuclear option to force Neil Gorsuch onto the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't think you and I have talked about this particular battle before. And just to be uh, full disclosure, I have long seen this seat as a stolen seat and now a stolen U.S. Supreme Court by Republicans for a generation uh, or more. So your thoughts on the Republicans' refusal to even hold a hearing on uh, Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, for a year before doing away with the filibuster in order to seat Trump's nominee, Neil Gorsuch. Uh, Well, I couldn't agree more about the seat being stolen. I think that's the best way to put it. I think it's what Democrats and uh, progressives should continue to say whenever they discuss Gorsuch or the seat. I think it should be really the first thing uh, out of their mouths whenever they mention the Supreme Court, at least for a long time, Mm -hmm. because... The the blockade of Garland was, to my mind, so much more uh, consequential 
than, than anything involving the filibuster. This was utterly unprecedented. It was shocking. Um, and yet, because it played out largely behind the scenes, because there was never a single dramatic hearing or confrontation on the Senate floor, it became very easy to forget about. And indeed, I've been uh, disappointed by how little coverage of Gorsuch and the Gorsuch hearings mm. focus on the fact that this is not Gorsuch's seat. This was Merrick Garland's seat. Now, if the Senate had held an up or down vote and voted Garland out and not accepted him, then I would have said, okay, well, that's how the Senate works. It's a dumb vote, but it's how the Senate works. But this is not how the Senate works. This is not how Congress is supposed to function. It is the quintessence of dysfunction um, because it takes a constitutional dictate uh, that the Senate shall provide advice and consent, and it just obliterates it now and forever. I don't see how we restore this norm, uh, and again, this constitutional rule after the seat. So, you know, uh, I, I think that Gorsuch is not the absolute worst possible pick. I think he's bad. I think that we will come to regret his, uh, you know, his, his uh, work on the Supreme Court. Um, but I think that that's almost the, the less important mm -hmm. thing to talk about right now. We should be talking about how this is not his seat. It was stolen. And it makes the court in a lot of ways illegitimate from here on out. Uh, you know, uh, and I'm in complete agreements, uh, agreement with you, uh, Mark. I I brought this point up uh, yesterday when I was speaking with the Ian Milheiser about this Senate coup, and it really is. Uh, it, it seems to me the Democrats, in one regard, made a mistake here. I think that they were right to hold hearings. They were right to not do what Republicans had done to uh, to Merrick Garland. But, uh, you know, by ultimately by focusing on his record, on Gorsuch's record, rather than, as you say, you know, the first time they open their mouth talking about the fact that this is a stolen seat and focusing only on that, essentially what they end up with here is, you know, like any other uh, Supreme Court battle. Democrats see it one way. Republicans uh, see the, uh, the nominee another way. But, hey, you know, the president has the right to to uh, nominate whoever they like. Did Democrats make a mistake by not, you know, by by actually taking the time to look at Gorsuch's record rather than just saying, hey, I'm sure you're swell, but this is a stolen seat and we can't go, you know, we can't move forward without, you know, bringing some sort of institutional penalty for a stolen Supreme Court majority. Yes, I think that's about right. I mean, it's clear now, and it was clear at the beginning, that by showing up to hearings and asking the kind of questions that Democrats asked, why did you rule this way in this case? What's your philosophy mm -hmm. on originalism? Uh, they were normalizing the terrible antics of the Republicans over the previous year or yep. so. Um, and so, by, like you said, by showing up and going through the motions, yes, they might have asked slightly sharper questions than they would have otherwise, but for the most part, it was kind of a milquetoast confirmation hearing. It was the kind of answerless charade mm -hmm. that we've come to expect and that has given us at least four, uh, five at least, Supreme Court justices over the last few decades. You know, Thomas didn't really answer questions. Bork is really the last justice to frankly answer, although Ginsburg was certainly more honest uh, at her confirmation than Gorsuch. And I think Gorsuch may set a new low for just dishonesty and opacity. Um, but, you know, it was more or less 
in line with what we've come to expect, and that hurt Democrats a ton. Who cares about the frozen trucker case? Who cares about this or that ridiculous decision that your clerk wrote for you six years ago? What matters is that it's a stolen seat, but Democrats allowed Republicans to shift the spotlight off of that issue and onto Gorsuch's record, and as soon as they were there, Democrats had basically lost. Now, some have argued, uh, for example, uh, UC uh, University of California Irvine law professor Rick Hassan, for example, that Democrats uh, made a mistake to filibuster, that they should have kept their powder dry for the next court vacancy, where he argues essentially that they're likely to get someone even farther to the right of uh, of Neil Gorsuch. Uh, well, two questions here. Uh, your response to uh, Rick Hassan on that political issue. And uh, Milheiser said that he believes Gorsuch is actually to the right of the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Do do you share uh, his position on that? Uh, Well, to answer your first question, I disagree with Rick because uh, his premise um, relies upon at least a sliver of intellectual honesty and consistency in the Republican Party, which I do not believe exists. Rick really thinks that a majority of Republicans would not be willing to immediately nuke the filibuster next time around, Mm -hmm. if there is a next time, which is not a sure thing. It could happen. We could have no more vacancies throughout the Trump presidency. Uh, But either way, Rick seems to think that Republicans would really stop and ponder and worry that moderates might get peeled off. Uh, you know, that there could be some movement, a bipartisan coalition to find a consensus candidate. And I do not think that that is true at all. I don't think it will happen. I haven't seen moderate, quote unquote, moderate Republicans defect from Trump's legislative agenda so far. It was the House Freedom Caucus, after all, that sank the health care bill, and that was in the House, not the Senate. Uh, Not enough senators have objected to a cabinet nominee to sink that nomination. Even Betsy DeVos got through with Mike Pence's vote. Uh, And so I just don't see how down the road uh, Republicans will be in any weaker of a position or or the moderates who allegedly exist uh, will have any more sway. So I think, you know, nuke the damn thing. It's been there long enough. It's dumb. Everyone agrees that it's a really stupid procedural hurdle. Uh, And honestly, when people vote for a party, uh, they expect that party to put their judges on the courts. And Mm -hmm. I think it's becoming increasingly difficult for both parties to explain to their bases why there's this silly threshold that doesn't make any sense that only thwarts progress. Um, So, you know, Mm -hmm. nuke it now. Might we regret it down the road? Sure. It could certainly happen that we'll regret it. But in the long run, it helps the country to not have a filibuster. The Senate is counter-majoritarian enough with its unequal representation. So I frankly say good riddance. Uh, Now, to answer your second question, um, you know, Ian and I have had a lot of uh, conversations about this. I'm not sure that he's that Gorsuch is quite as far to the right as Ian thinks. A lot of that depends on how you gauge um, ideology on the bench, which mm-hmm. doesn't always align neatly with uh, you know, partisan ideology. But I do think that Gorsuch is about where Scalia is, about where maybe even Clarence Thomas is. And so I agree with him that this fear of a future candidate who's even worse than Gorsuch is really less about ideology than it is about temperament. Gorsuch will rule against gay people with a smile on his face. 
and a future Justice William Pryor, Ted Cruz, will just rule against gay people with a scowl. It's really a question of whether you want a happy arch-conservative or an angry arch-conservative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the end of the day, it just doesn't much matter because they're going to rule against the good guys anyway. You know, it's it's like we have in this uh, Seventh Circuit case uh, that we're going to talk about momentarily kind of underscores this. It's, it's like we have two completely separate tracks now, parallel maybe. Uh, maybe we've always had these tracks, but it seems really clear now. You sort of have one track, uh, as we've seen in the Seventh Circuit uh, uh, ruling on the Civil Rights Act, which is, you know, really legitimately focuses on the rule of law itself. And then the other, this uh, growing political divide, these machinations in, in Congress where they're, you know, getting their man in this case, Gorsuch, at all costs, that's paramount. Uh, and, and yet we still have these court rulings, uh, this rule of law, as we see in the Seventh Circuit, um, you know, that doesn't seem to be about politics. These these two things in this country now seem to be on completely separate or parallel tracks, uh, but they all they both come together, I think, at, at the Supreme Court, ultimately. I'm not sure what my question is. It's more of an observation there, Mark. Well, I I think it's a sharp observation. I, I would I would caution that there were three dissenters in the Seventh Circuit case that mm-hmm. we're about to talk about. Um, uh, all three Republican appointees, one of whom is Judge Diane Sykes. She wrote the dissent, uh, and she has been floated as a uh, shortlister, a nominee, especially if Ginsburg dies or steps down and, and Trump feels that he should replace her with a woman. Um, so, you know, there are two separate tracks. They intersect more than we'd like to think. Uh, but I think it also boils down to the fact that there are good judges and bad judges. The good judges don't care that much about what the GOP or Democratic platforms say that year. They care about the rule of law. And the bad judges are no better than the senators who just blocked Garland and nuked the filibuster. Um, I think that it it remains to be seen which side of the divide Gorsuch falls on, but my very strong suspicion is that his mere willingness to accept this offer of taking a stolen seat puts him on the bad side of that divide. Uh, No, exactly. The good judges, the Richard Posner's uh, who you know, by all rights, should be on the Supreme Court. They will never get nominated at, at this point, unfortunately. Let's let's talk about this uh, the Seventh Circuit uh, case. You describe uh, at at Slate, Mark Joseph Stern, this to be a thunderbolt from the Seventh Circuit uh, because it's big, but it, it it really highlights also how important this this theft of the Supreme Court really was. So let's talk about the case itself. Why do you see this uh, this case, Mark, as as such a thunderbolt and a landmark decision, as you see it. Well, uh, as you said earlier, this is a case about workplace discrimination, which itself is always a real flashpoint and a very difficult subject, uh, especially in the courts. And what the Seventh Circuit uh, decision uh, asked was essentially whether existing civil rights law, the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, already prohibits uh, anti-gay workplace discrimination. Um, And so you might think, well, hey, it was passed in 1964. There's no possible way that it could prohibit uh, gay workplace discrimination. They didn't care about gay people. They didn't even know Mm -hmm. they existed back then. Um, To which the courts thus far have mostly answered, well, we don't really look at what the legislator's subjective intent was. We look at the text of the statute. And the text of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination because of sex. Um, And so what the Seventh Circuit majority said was, look, 
it is it is logically incoherent to remove sexual orientation discrimination from the concept of sex discrimination. When an employer discriminates against a woman for dating another woman, he is discriminating against her explicitly on the basis of her sex. If she were a man dating a woman, then she would not face discrimination. Mm. If she were a, a woman dating a man, then she would not face discrimination. It is only because she is a woman and she is associating intimately with other women uh, that she faces this kind of discrimination. And just to give you an analogy here, um, if an employer discriminates against a white woman for marrying a black man, mm -hmm. that is racial discrimination. Uh, and it's the exact same thing here. Just as that constitutes race discrimination because he's discriminating against the employee for associating intimately with someone of the opposite race uh, or a different race, this is sex discrimination because an employer is punishing an employee for intimately associating with someone of the same sex. The logic really falls into place, um, and it's actually supported by a Supreme Court decision way back from 1989 that uh, has a, a somewhat related theory of sex discrimination, which refers to sex stereotyping. This idea um, that women should be feminine and men should be masculine. Uh, and the Supreme Court said in 89, look, that is just a form of sex discrimination. If you punish workers for failing to conform to a gender norm, then you have committed discrimination on the basis of sex. And many courts now, including the Seventh Circuit, the first appeals court to make this decision uh, so clearly, uh, has, have said it, it, it's the same issue when you're dealing with homosexual employees. When an employer punishes a gay employee because she is dating another woman, he is punishing her for failing to uh, adhere to the gender norms, to the stereotypes that he holds for women, namely that women should only date men. And so just as in 1989, the Supreme Court said it was sex stereotyping for uh, an advertising company to refuse to promote a woman for being too mannish, too masculine, too aggressive. Mm. Uh, today, it is illegal for an employer to refuse to hire a worker um, because she is a lesbian and thus she only dates people of the same sex. And the employer believes, no, 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 that's not how women are supposed to act. Women are supposed to date men and a woman dating a woman doesn't deserve to work here. So this really does put it into, uh, it's agreed that the Civil Rights Act covers race and sex, but uh, but not until now anyway, I guess, sexuality, essentially, correct? Well, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. This is the first uh, circuit court decision to say very explicitly that it is always uh, sex discrimination to discriminate against a gay employee. However, other courts, federal courts and some other circuit courts, have used this sex stereotyping theory to squeeze uh, gay people in. You know, uh, for a long time, effeminate gay men and butch lesbians have been permitted to file uh, Title VII claims under the theory that, well, this isn't really about their sexuality. This isn't about their orientation. It's just a stereotype about their behavior. Uh, but what the Seventh Circuit recognized is that that dividing line doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to say that it's stereotyping to discriminate against a gay man for being effeminate, but not for discriminating against a masculine gay man 
for being gay. That line doesn't exist. It's incoherent. And the reality is that all of these stereotypes that the court has talked about, all of these ideas about how genders, uh, people of one gender or another are supposed to act, they are all sex stereotyping. They all involve discriminating against a person for not dating someone of the opposite sex, as the employer believes they should. And so they all fit rather easily into Title VII's ban on sex discrimination. This is a, a very strong ruling uh, for the majority. It was eight, eight to three here. You even had to judge Frank Easterbrook, who has, uh, by the way, either lied or gotten wrong all manner of things in the past when it comes to Voter ID. Uh, exactly. Uh, drives me crazy. Yes, me uh, too. But we have to cheer him on when we when we can. Well, right? Make I, him aspire to greatness. Well, I think the, the fact that even he is on board here, along with uh, Judge Posner, whose, whose decisions, by the way, I think a study found not long ago, uh, Posner's decisions, I believe, are the most cited in uh, Supreme Court rulings, uh, perhaps in history, I believe. So I'm wondering... When you have this very strong opinion that, you know, if you look at what Posner said, essentially that, you know, laws should not be frozen in time to the day that they were passed, but, you know, should take in to consideration new circumstances and societal positions into account. I mean, that seems to me, Mark, to be the very definition of liberalism when we're talking about. Uh, you know, about uh, jurisprudence here. And yet it's coming from one of the the right wing's uh, favorite Reagan appointed judges. So does this potentially represent a whole new paradigm when it comes to the liberal conservative uh, divide and and the definition of, you know, originalism, as as uh, Scalia used to say, we've got to interpret these laws precisely the way they are literally written on the page. Is this a, a paradigm shift here for conservatives? Well, you know, Judge Posner is always a paradigm unto himself. Uh, okay. And so I would caution against drawing, uh, drawing out any broader trends from his own opinions. Um, but uh, you've definitely hit on something real and interesting, which is this, this concurrence that he wrote that basically provides a very progressive... Uh, very liberal and sort of modernist, almost postmodernist, actually, view of what judges should do. And mm-hmm. Posner basically said he joins the majority opinion, but he also writes separately saying, uh, look, we didn't know that sexual orientation discrimination was a problem in 1964. I didn't know any openly gay people in 1964. The only gay people I knew about were from reading Flaubert. But we have since learned that they exist. And we know, like, the purpose of this law was to protect minorities in the workplace. It protects all these other people. Why shouldn't it protect gays and lesbians? That, that's Posner's logic, and I think it's appealing for people who view judges' jobs as sort of developing the law in the way that um, state court judges develop common law. We could get into a long discussion about this, but the fact is that a lot of law in the United States is judge-made law. Things like torts and contracts and all those things are often made by judges as a sort of deliberative body over the years. Uh, and so Posner views his job as very similar to that. He thinks, he, he pushes back really, really hard 
against the Scalia idea that everything is frozen in amber um, and, and says, look, it's ridiculous to expect the legislature to always keep updating and updating and updating these laws. We have a good sense of what they were about. We have a good sense of why they exist. What in the world is wrong with us applying them in a progressive way to, um, to you know, the modern facts before us? I, well, I want to talk about how this is going to play at the Supreme Court on a uh, on a five to four, once again, five to four Supreme Court. Uh, but you write also uh, in your piece at Slate on this, uh, Mark, the, that uh, the Equal Opportunity, Oppor- Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, one of the commissioners there told you this week that that she was gratified to see that the Seventh Circuit had adopted the simple logic that sexual orientation discrimination is a form of discrimination. And I hope its reasoning can serve as a model for other courts, she said. First, um, this is uh, Chai Feld. Is that how you say her name? Hi, hi, Feldblum. Hi, Feld, Feldblum. All right. Uh, Feldblum, uh, is she an Obama appointee or a Trump yeah. appointee? So Hi is, uh, Commissioner Feldblum, I should say, um, is a, uh, an Obama appointee who is also sort of a visionary uh, lawyer, uh, professor, author, uh, just talent extraordinaire, who really kind of started, kicked off the Title VII revolution that has now been brought to at least partial fruition. She wrote a terrific and extraordinarily influential law review article a very long time ago, um, basically saying, yes, it's true, Title VII means what it says, and that means LGBT employees are protected. Um, And so I don't think it's an overstatement to say that when Obama put her on the EEOC, he probably knew that one of her key campaigns would be to push that agency toward recognizing that gay, bisexual, and transgender workers are already protected under Title VII. And, that she did. And is she still, uh, is this one of the, uh, I, and I don't know how the EEOC works as far as this goes, but is this one of these commissions where uh, the commissioners stay on even through uh, subsequent presidencies? Uh, yes, that's correct. She will be on until 2018, and, um, and, but she will lose the Democratic majority on the commission. In fact, already has lost it. Well, that's what I was going to ask, because uh, it occurs to me that Justice uh, Clarence Thomas was once an EEO, famously an EEOC commissioner, as I recall. Uh, so I was wondering if the fact that the EEOC, that, that this uh, Commissioner Feldblum had come out, if that would have any effect uh, you know, on Clarence Thomas's position at the Supreme Court, maybe a dumb question. I don't know. So let me ask the broader question: uh, How do you, do you expect this to actually go to the Supreme Court? Uh, now that I think there is a, a split among the circuit courts on this, is there not? Uh, yes, there there is. Um, to, to answer your earlier question, I, I don't think this has any effect on Thomas because he actually really has grown to hate the EEOC, mm-hmm. uh, particularly under Obama. He seems to relish ruling against the EEOC um, because it usually now stakes out progressive positions. That will, of course, change um, uh, under uh, a re- um, Republican majority. But, you know, hope springs eternal. We'll see what happens there. Um, but to your other question, uh, you know, Sorry, what was your other question? Well, uh, about the split on this on the circuit courts. Uh, yeah, for, so yeah. He, I've I've read that Ivy Tech, which is the defendant here, 
will not be appealing this to the Supreme Court. Instead, they're going to take it back to the district court and fight on the facts. So in other words, they're going to say, yeah, okay, it's illegal to discriminate against lesbians, but we actually didn't discriminate against this woman. Um, And so if it does go to the court, we'll have to wait for a final verdict there. It'll pop back up to the seventh, and then it'll pop up to the Supremes. There's probably going to be another case before then. In fact, I'm certain that there will be another case to reach another circuit court before then because they're cropping up uh, all over the country. Um, And when it gets there, you know, like you said, I'm very confident that there are four votes. I wonder whether any of the conservatives would be willing to jump on the bandwagon, especially given Judge Easterbrook's uh, willingness to join, as well as Judges um, Mm -hmm. Joel Flaum and Kenneth Ripple, who are both Reagan appointees. And, uh, you know, I was actually at oral arguments in November for this case uh, in Chicago. And the look on Judge Easterbrook's face, was, it was pretty incredible because everyone had counted him out. He's a conservative, mm-hmm. a really, like a real conservative, not a sort of idiosyncratic Posner conservative, but like, you know, close, close to Scalia type conservative. Uh, and yet he looked very frustrated with um, Ivy Tech's arguments against uh, Kimberly Hively. And, and he was the one who, about halfway through arguments, leaned forward and said in this booming voice, what about loving versus Virginia? What about the case where we said prohibiting, preventing a white person from marrying a black person is race discrimination? How does that not translate directly into the sex discrimination context? And so I I wish that he had written separately. I was obviously very heartened to see that he joined the majority opinion. I, I feel that perhaps if Justice Kennedy looks at this, he'll want to do the right thing. And maybe, just maybe, knowing that in the past, these Reagan appointees have been willing to support this theory of Title VII will push him a little farther in the right direction. You, uh, yeah, it was incredible to see Easterbrook coming over. You call him a, a, a very conservative. I call him a right-winger. Posner, to me, is a real conservative. Easterbrook is just a a right winger, at least in my opinion. But you write that uh, and this piece, I should note, was before the uh, the Republicans went ahead and blew up the uh, the filibuster for for the Supreme Court. But you wrote in your article about the Seventh Circuit uh, landmark decision that it will be impossible for other judges to ignore Uh, this ruling, and with a little luck, it will soon push a majority of the Supreme Court to recognize that anti-gay discrimination is, at root, discrimination because of sex. So, last question for today, Mark. Uh, After Gorsuch's uh, confirmation and seeing what the Republican Party has been willing to do to you know, get him on that court by hook or by crook in order to get their people on that Supreme Court, um, are you still as confident today in your assessment uh, that uh, you know that that it, this will be impossible for those Supreme Court justices to ignore if, in fact, this case gets uh, or or a related case ends up getting to the Supreme Court, which which uh, seems almost certain to happen. Well, it'll be po- it'll be impossible for them to ignore. It will be possible for them to recognize it and disagree with it. You know, once you're on the Supreme Court, you get to do whatever you want. And if you have five votes, you really get to have some fun. And if Justice Gorsuch, hate to say it, but if Justice Gorsuch uh, wants to just 
say the Seventh Circuit stepped out of its lane, that this is for Congress to do, not the courts, uh, that no one in 1964 thought, blah, blah, blah. He can do it. But it'll be very weak reasoning. It'll be, I think, a little embarrassing, frankly, for the majority if they do uh, go against this decision because the arguments are so strong. However, um, there's a little case called Bush v. Gore, another one called Hobby Lobby, actually a long line of cases that have, in my opinion, horrifyingly weak logic, just humiliatingly weak logic. Uh, and no connection to the facts, uh, but because the conservatives had five votes, they issued the ruling anyway. Uh, and so, you know, if they can do whatever they want, they might ignore it, they might accept it, they might just uh, argue against it in a footnote. Um, but at, a, at no doubt, some of the justices will cite this decision, whether it's in the majority or the dissent. Some of the justices will quote liberally from this decision and hold it up, I think, as the paragon uh, sort of explainer of why Title VII protects LGBT employees. Sending positive thoughts towards uh, Justice Kennedy's way at this point, I suspect, on this case. Positive thoughts and kale, as much kale as possible. Keep him healthy. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern covers uh, law and LGBTQ issues for Slate.com. You can follow him. uh, You can read his fantastic and and uh, really helpful work at Slate.com, and follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Mark, always great talking to you, my friend. I uh, suspect and fear we will be doing it again soon. Let's hope it will be in happier times. We'll hope against hope. Yes, please. Thanks, Mark. Always a pleasure. Okay. Speaking of happier times, it's, uh, it's, it's like the McCarthy hearings all over again in the U.S. House. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with the Green News Report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Melting for Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, as usual, on a day like this after... Uh, boy, you know, Des, uh, g- corporate media failure, uh, which we cover on today's report, GNR, I, we, we saw it in the Supreme Court race. Frankly, they did not press the point that this was a stolen seat. 
I fear they are not doing their job all over again when it comes to uh, what's going on in Syria. They're doing a lot. I saw a lot of cheerleading from the uh, corporate media over the past 12, 24 hours or so over this. Yeah, they're certainly getting their war on. As usual. But let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. 2016 saw all the major news networks reduced coverage of this vital issue. Corporate media failed to inform the public on climate change right when we needed it most. Don't you think the fact that we have these coal power plants belching uh, carbon emissions into the air, do you don't think that has, plays a role? Even Fox News pushing back on Trump administration's climate denial. EPA sued for refusing to ban toxic pesticide. Plus, Dr. Mann, are you affiliated or associated with an organization called the Union of Concerned Scientists? Scientific integrity on trial and under attack in the House of Representatives. Oh, man. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So today he kept... An important campaign promise, one that he said many times. Today, he uh, repealed the environment. Uh, Well, I'm glad we're just getting it over with quick. Rip off the Band-Aid. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, that clip in the teaser there at the top, are you now or have you ever been a climate scientist? Could have been straight out of the McCarthy hearings, but... But it wasn't. It was in the science committee over the past week. That's exactly right. Republicans in the House of Representatives are accelerating their attacks on the scientific community at that House Science Committee hearing, which was loopy, by the way. Eminent climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann was the only scientist brought in from mainstream science. He sparred with committee chair and climate science denier Representative Lamar Smith of Texas, who also attacked one of the world's most respected scientific journals. Here's Dr. Mann. The scientific method, we've heard this uh, term uh, quite a bit. Uh, The chairman keeps using this term. I do not think it means what he thinks it means. Uh, According to an article that came out a few days ago in the journal Science, the uh, the article... Uh, That is not known as an objective writer or magazine. Well, it's Science Magazine. Man, Science Magazine is not an objective magazine? Not to the House Science Committee. Unbelievable. House Republicans have launched another attack on science this week, passing two bills that, if they become law, would restrict what kinds of scientific data the Environmental Protection Agency can legally use for developing regulations. Scientists warn that both bills will handcuff the EPA's scientists. The Congressional Budget Office says both bills will increase the EPA's cost by $250 million a year, and that That's in the face of deep budget cuts. And just because I need to ask, you don't mean literally handcuff the EPA scientists, right? (laughs) No. Not yet, anyway. All right. A coalition of environmental law groups have sued the EPA this week, asking a federal court to force a ban on all uses of the common pesticide chlorpyrifos. Last week, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt ignored the EPA's own science and the EPA's own scientists and refused to ban the pesticide, despite strong scientific evidence linking the pesticide to fetal abnormalities and neurotoxic poisoning in farm workers and their children. Well, in Pruitt's defense, those scientists were handcuffed at the time. Well, this is despite the fact that the EPA has already banned the use of that pesticide for residential use. 
Meanwhile, a new report from Media Matters finds that the corporate mainstream media failed the American public right when they needed it most last year by covering climate change 66 percent less than they did in 2015. The corporate media spent only 50 minutes combined on climate change, the lowest level since 2010. Worse, during the presidential campaign, TV networks spent zero minutes reporting on the differences in climate policies between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Uh, How many minutes did they spend during the presidential campaign? Zero. Zero. Fantastic. Way to go, media. Now that Donald Trump is president, Media Matters now says the media is finally reporting on Trump's climate policies. Even Fox News Sunday host Chris Wallace challenged EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt on the administration's climate science denial. You said there, I would not agree that carbon CO2 is a primary contributor to global warming. And and the question I have is, what if you're wrong? See, uh, look, uh, let me say to you, CO2 contributes to uh, greenhouse gas. It has a greenhouse gas effect. The issue is how much uh, we we contribute to it from a human activity perspective and then what can be done about it from a process perspective, Chris. Where the hell were these people years ago? Finally, some good news. Despite Trump's attempts to roll back climate regulations that would cut emissions from power plants, Reuters reports electric utility companies aren't listening. Most of the 32 utilities in 26 states that Reuters surveyed said they have no plans to go back to using coal and will continue their multi-billion dollar long-term plans to shift to cleaner, cheaper sources of energy. So sad. How are we ever going to bring those coal jobs back? We're going to have clean coal, really clean coal. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us and share us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. For more than eight years running, this has been your Green News Report. All right. Thank you, Desi Doyen. I appreciate you. You did seem to lighten things up today. <laughs> I us, tried. So, so. And Thank one you. more good bit yeah. of news. Uh, yeah. The European Union has also just signed an agreement to not build any new coal plants after 2020. So coal's on the way out. Don't tell Donald Trump. <laughs> Thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer. And my thanks today to my guest, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show, stop by bradblog.com. You can get it and any other broadcast you like for free anytime. Thanks to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on the air through these difficult times, bradblog.com slash donate. That is greatly appreciated. You can also drop us email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, where we hope you will share us, I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.